There we go. Well, let's look in Acts chapter 17 and just the last three verses of the chapter um, as we continue in our study here. And it says, Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer, but others said, We shall hear you again concerning this. So Paul went out of their midst, but some men joined him and believed among whom also was Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. To kind of catch us up, last week, uh, maybe a couple of you weren't here last week, we had uh, talked about Paul's methods of uh, bringing the gospel and his, his strategies, if you will, of uh, breaking down the idolatry that he saw in Athens, and really in, in other places as well, because the main idol that we, in our sinful self, uh, are challenged with is ourself, is it not? And so it doesn't just have to be something uh, made out of stone, uh, but, but idolatry is part of the sinful nature. And so we ask about the foundations of idolatry, what are they? Essentially, we just said there were three basic foundations of idolatry that kind of encompassed all the rest. And they were these. They were, first of all, uh, comparing the creator with the creature. It's one of the things our sinful mind will do to bring, try and bring God down in our thinking. It's to compare God with ourselves. When we get into that, we are dethroning God in our thinking. And, uh, of course, Paul counters that with God's infinity and the fact that he's eternal and he created the heavens and the earth. And, and it, it excludes any possibility of us comparing ourselves with him. There is no comparison. The second foundation of idolatry is to try to limit the creator within a place. You know, the, the temple or a religious holy site or, or a region of the country or whatever it may be. And, uh, and Paul counters that with the speaking of God's omnipresence. God, his presence feels everywhere at the same moment. In fact, the universe doesn't contain God. It's contained within God. And so with these things in mind, he breaks that argument down. The third foundation of idolatry is that we might somehow allure God or appease God with gifts that we might offer. It's kind of the, at the root of that is the idea that God needs us, you know. And, and let's just be honest with ourselves. It gives us some sort of a strange form of comfort to think that somehow someone needs us, right? I mean, in a human sense, it's not a bad thing to be needed. I, I I feel that my wife and children need me in some capacity, and, and I need my wife and children. So, on that, looking at it that way, it might not be bad at all. But when we think of our Creator, to somehow try to think of Him in that same vein, that it would make me feel good that He needed something for me, we cannot do that because the Bible excludes the possibility He has no need whatsoever. Uh, yes, we are commanded to do things in our relationship with Him, but that's out of his command, not out of his will, not out of need. So Paul uh, counters that with God's sovereignty and his ownership of all things. He has need of nothing, never needed anything. He didn't create the universe out of the sense of need, or that he was lacking something. And we'll get in a little bit beginning next week and following into the attributes of God. We'll, uh, we'll work a few more of those things out. Okay? But we, we asked the question last week and didn't get around to answering it, so we'll try to do that this morning. And that is this, uh, how then did Paul set about to turn people away from their idolatry and toward God? 
In other words, what can we notice about what Paul did and the way that he did it, what he said and what he did, to uh, that we might be able to duplicate in ourselves today? We want, we want to be effective witnesses. We want to be uh, thorough in our witness for God and effective. And so how might we duplicate uh, what Paul did? So first of all, I'm going to share several things with you. But the first thing is to always remember that Paul's preaching was evangelistic. Paul's preaching or teaching was a message that was communicated clearly, either verbally or written. Paul would either lean, if his audience was the, the Jews in the synagogue and the God-fearing Gentiles who had been hearing the Old Testament scripture, he would lean on the written word and he would say, now here is the New Testament fulfillment in Christ of these things. He would, he would go to those passages that were familiar, that spoke of Messiah and his suffering and his uh, reconciliation, uh, reconciling work to bring us to God. And he would show them that Christ is this Messiah who was to come. And so he was verbally teaching concerning the written word of God, so he combined them there. If his audience were the, the pagans, like they were in Athens, he did not begin by quoting the scripture, he began with creation. He would, he would speak to them of creation, and he would speak to them of their culture, and he would speak to them of their conscience. Because in all of these ways, because we're all, without exception, created in the image of God, in his image, we bear his image, albeit in our fallen nature it is marred, but, but in, our, in our living and in our expressions and our desires, even to worship, we give proof that we are, in fact, the offspring of God. And so Paul would begin from creation and culture and conscience, in other words, what the pagans saw, what their culture uh, did, you know, their, their mannerisms, their cultures, their customs, and then what they thought, he would begin there, but he would always really end in the same place. So he would begin in different places by, determined by his audience, but he would always end in the same place, speaking to them about Jesus Christ. And so the uh, uh, evangelism must be either verbal or written communication about the good news of Christ. Every now and then, if you haven't already heard it, you're going to hear of folks in some other place, in some other country and culture, usually not close enough for us to examine ourselves thoroughly. Somewhere far, far away, <laughs> uh, there's people being converted without even hearing the word preached to them. <clears throat> well, while God is sovereign, he can do whatever he chooses to do in an extraordinary way. I just know that the normative way of people coming to Jesus Christ is through either the the written word of God or verbally communicating that word of God. And so when I hear those things, I, I have to remain skeptical. I will not say absolutely not because I'm not in a position to say that. I'm not in a position to say what God can absolutely do or not do. None of us are. But what would be normative? Uh, what, would be, what would be his normal and commanded ways to do that? So we communicate the message of the gospel to point to Jesus Christ. And uh, so we're communicating, right? If you look back in chapter 17 and verse 17, it says there that when Paul in his conscience was pricked and provoked by all the idols he saw, that as a result of that, he was doing what in the synagogue? What does your Bible translation say? Verse 17. So he was what? Reasoning. Okay, is that what everyone says? What is your psychology? Disputing. Okay. Okay. Anybody have a different 
I, I think there's a lot of words probably that characterize the idea there. Uh, I'm not saying one is better than the other. New American Standard does say reasoning here. He was reasoning, um, and that's good, you know. But the fact is that he was communicating verbally and through the written word of God, which was the Old Testament, to them the message of the gospel. And so we have to ask ourselves this question. These are very basic things, but you know we have we have some young folks here that maybe are formulating their ideas of what effective witness is. So I hope that we'll encourage them and maybe reinforce some of the things that the that you know as well as adults. Now, if we're going to be effective in communicating or evangelizing, we're going to have to know that we, we have to give the whole message. And the whole message is going to include several things. And I like the way I saw one guy explain it, so I'm just going to take his three words and use them. He said, effective evangelism includes these three things. It includes explaining, um, excuse me, warning, explaining, and then third, calling. Warning, explaining, and calling. Here's what he meant by that. He said, warning people about sin and its consequences. That's the warning. It has to include that. It has to include explaining to them God's remedy for sin. And then it has to include calling them to repent and obey or repent and believe the gospel. So if we're going to be effective in our presentation, if you will, I, I kind of hesitate to use that word because it sounds formal, it's more of the way we just engage people, but if we're going to be effective, we have to have a strategy. Strategy must include a solid foundation. Every house must be built on a solid foundation. So if we're going to get a good start, we need to be sure that we include all the essential elements. So we're going to have to include explaining to them God, um, excuse me, warning them of God's consequences that he has determined because we're sinners, explaining to them his remedy that he's provided, and then also warning them uh, to, calling them to uh, repent and to believe. So let me just ask you then, all right? Warning, explaining, and calling. And I didn't do a very good job of, uh, of saying it, but warning, explaining, and calling. In the warning, people about sin and its consequences, ask yourself, am I prepared to give a good answer there? And I'm not talking about, you know, being able to quote from a theological journal on the subject, that's fine if you can do that. Uh, I'm just talking about to give a basic, clear answer. If, if you're going to say to someone, you know that you're a sinner before God and that, that sin has consequences, what do we mean when we say that? Why are we sinners? That would be the basic core question you would have to answer for yourself if you're going to ask somebody else. By the way, why are we sinners? Sorry. An online video, maybe going viral, where a man was on a college campus engaging with folks, you know, what do you think about God and all these matters? And what kind of person do you think you are? Well, I'm basically a good person. And he said, Well, so have you ever, have you ever just told a lie? It's the truth. Yeah, I've done I've never taken anything that didn't belong to you. Yeah, I've taken that. I've done that. Have you ever taken God's name in vain? Yeah. So, okay, so let's just establish you're a liar, a thief, and a blasphemer. <laughs> and we can start this from there, okay? Yeah, that's good because it's, it's perspective, isn't it? They're justifying themselves, but you very quickly can show through those memes that, you know, we really are sinners. We're, we're not 
whole before God. We're, we're undone. And so he's warning people about sin and its consequences. You know, we're sinners because of Adam, our forefather, and by nature, and we're sinners by choice and lifestyle. So well, that's why we're sinners, and we have to warn people the same from them, for them. And, and that would be a good way to approach it if they would uh, tend to deny that. And of course they will in many ways. Explaining to them about God's uh, remedy for sin, you know, what what is God's remedy for sin in a nutshell? Okay. Okay. Yes. Sanders said that, you know, that Jesus Christ is the remedy. How so? By his uh, meritorious life and death and through his glorious resurrection, he has satisfied God's righteous demands on our behalf and in our place. And that's our only satisfaction. Um, so, you know, and, and, and she's explained it very well, and that's what we're talking about. It. And, and she just, she, she summarized it because she understands it, right? And, and so that's what we would want to do. And of course, that's going to lead to larger conversation. It's a great, all these are very large subjects, but what I'm trying to get you to think about right now, just these essentials as you engage culture. Maybe someone that's never been to church or never heard the gospel, or someone's just outright denying, outright denying, you know, hey, I don't need religion. That's just, you know, that's just a crutch for you. Things of that nature. And then calling them to repent and believe the good news. So we'd have to explain there what does repent mean. You know, sometimes we use religious words because we grew up hearing them or we hear them all the time. You know, I wouldn't begin if someone had says, I don't know anything about the Bible or anything about the church. I wouldn't begin by using biblical words and language. I wouldn't begin with, you know, well, let me speak to you, you know, soteriology. You know, let me explain a few things about, you know, this. And I would, you know, if, in fact, I may even be just be doing that out of a sense of, of pride. So I need to keep, keep myself in check and be sure that I'm clearly communicating. Warning people, explaining people, and calling people. Alright? So Paul did that. Paul's preaching was evangelistic. It's a communicated message. Doesn't mean we all communicate it the same, but we all communicate the same truth, do we not? And that's the beauty of it. You know, I'm not Paul and Jay and, and Bonnie and, and and you're not me and but we, we know the truth. And we can communicate that truth in our own terms, in our own language, as long as we communicate God's truth. So, it takes a little pressure off of it, doesn't it? Uh, I think that's kind of what Paul was trying to bring out in the beginning. You know, you have a and you have a and you have a So, it's the only thing that's about it. You know, sage, a They were. They were on the same team and giving the same message. Yeah, though they were very different. And that's the beauty of God's diversity of this kingdom. So, so Paul's preaching was evangelistic, but it was also, secondly, um, to win converts. Paul preached to win converts. And we have to be intentional about this, but we have to 
we have to explain a few things. And if you're still in Acts 17, look in verse uh, 34. And, and among them that joined and believed was Dionysius, the Areopagite, the man of authority there of the, of the council. According to Eusebius, the church historian, he says that Paul thoroughly taught uh, Dionysius in the faith, and that Dionysius became the first bishop of the church at Athens. So it was a significant conversion. Paul cannot predict who would believe. He can't manipulate who would believe. He can't choose who would believe. But Paul can be intentional about gaining converts. And so that's the point here, is that Paul's preaching was intentional to uh, convert people to Christ. And so our, our preaching and teaching and witnessing should be intentional. Uh, so what did Paul rely on? If he couldn't choose who would believe, if he couldn't predict it, if he couldn't manipulate it, which he would have never intended to do, but he must have been intentional, and so should we. What did he rely on? Well, he relied on God's truth, first and foremost. God's truth is, is what Paul never compromised on. He may have begun in different places with different audiences, but he always spoke the truth in love, and he always ended in the same place with warning and uh, explaining and calling. And so God's truth, he never changed or altered the core message, did he? I've heard some teaching in the past about, well, Paul is all, all things to all people. Well, they applied that in the sense that he changed the message to meet the audience, which he never did. He, he never changed the message. He would have been an unfaithful minister had he done that. But what he did was he understood the audience to whom he was speaking. And he, of course, you know, just tried with the best of uh, his ability to, to win them. Um, but he never changed the message. So he relied on God's truth. That's the, the message itself. That's where the power is. When we get outside of that, we're diminishing our power. We're diminishing our effectiveness. Because we're going away from God's truth. <clears throat> he also relied on the Holy Spirit to open the hearts. And uh, I made a separate set of notes here in, in response to changing pages. But, but he said in 1 Corinthians 9.16, Woe is unto me if I preach not the gospel. So the proclamation and explaining of the gospel was to Paul the great essential that, was, that, that he was compelled to do. He, he must preach the gospel. And there's all types of methods that you might employ, and I'm not saying that any of those are bad, but Paul said, he didn't say, woe is unto me if I, if I don't, you know, if I don't have no passion in my speech. Woe is unto me if I don't share X amount of verses. Woe is unto me if I, if I don't keep somebody until they make a commitment or whatever. Whatever methodology, he said, woe is unto me if I preach not the gospel. So the, the thing that was compelling him was not methodology, as much as it was the truth of the essentials of the gospel. We have to be careful, don't we, as a church, that we not think that the methods, we not get caught up in the methods and think that that's where the power and effectiveness of evangelism is. Well, we're talking about strategies and methods here for sure. The, the fallacy of the church growth movement in the last 40 years has been that it's a method that you can just plug in. It's a formula. And that, hey, it works over here, therefore it will work for you. Here's the, here's the strategy, you plug, plug the numbers in here, and it all comes out. Well, you know, it's, it's not the methods that determine the results. It's, it's the Holy Spirit of God that determines the results. Paul was not relying on his own thinking. He was relying on the Word of God given to him. 
he was not relying on his own power or methodology. He was relying on the Holy Spirit to apply that truth to the hearts of his audience. And so that being the case, um, he he had power in, in his witness because he was faithful to the Word and faithful to rely on the Spirit. But, those things being said, he also relied on his own passionate appeal to people. Paul was a man appealing to men and women, and he had compassion on them and wanted them to come to Christ. I've, I've had the gospel shared with me, even as a believer, by some Christians who were, I felt like I was under attack, and I'm already a believer. I mean, you know, they're coming at me from all sides, and I mean, I felt like I needed a shield to defend from the rocks. You know, Paul, I could tell that those people really, in their heart, weren't having compassion or mercy on me or seeking to help me. They just, you know, don't throw rocks at me. Maybe, maybe I need rocks at me. I don't know. Maybe a rock in the head would wake me up occasionally, but I don't think that's an effective or genuine method. We go out and we understand that we were sinners. The grace of God has touched our lives. The mercy of God has given us everything that we have. It's all a gift of God. We go out having compassion and mercy on other people, seeking with our own uh, passion in our speech to them, compelling them to come to Christ, sharing them within the necessity of coming to Christ. It's different when you share it like that, and we must. And uh, so Paul did that. He did rely on a straightforward, earnest appeal. Why? Because God is pleased <laughs> to communicate his love to men and women through men and women. God is pleased to communicate his grace and mercy to men and women through men and women. Would somebody read 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 15, verse 15? And then would someone else have 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2? 1 Peter 3, 15 and 2 Timothy 2, 2. Is there a little bit more? You read what I asked you to, Faith. I see that I see a slight difference here in where the where the uh, New American Standard divided the last few words of that verse. So that's what got me. Yeah. Um, Sanctify the Lord in your heart, always being ready to make a defense or give an answer, some translations say, to everyone who asks you to give an account of the hope that's within you, and yet you do that how? With gentleness and reverence. And so there's that perspective, that's that readiness, you know, and, and we're creatures of extremes. Don't we swing our pendulum too far one way or the other? So sometimes when we, we juice up ourselves to be ready to give that answer, well, we can tend to be a little bit harsh or critical in our approach. Uh, and if, but if we don't, if we're not ready, then we just tend to be, you know, well, God loves you, and well, what does that mean? Well, I'm not sure. I just know God loves you, you know. He loves you. He loves you. Come on. Don't you know He loves you? You know, they need more. And um, so there's a balance of having a, a solid biblical understanding of us being sinners, necessity to repent and believe, and, and calling people to the same, and yet doing that with the spirit of, uh, of love and compassion toward them. You're seeking to win them. You're seeking their good, just like God sought your good. And if God wills it, the Word of God and the Spirit of God will use your earnest appeal to those people, and He will uh, get for Himself the 
Good. All right, somebody has 2 Timothy 2.2. 2. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, and trust the faithful man who will be able to teach others also. Okay. You've probably heard this before, but here we have four generations in this one verse, right? And we're talking about God being pleased to communicate uh, the gospel message to men and women, by men and women, and and four generations you have Paul who says to Timothy, I entrusted it to you, that's Paul to Timothy, that's one generation. He said, now you entrusted the faithful men, that's, that's from Paul to Timothy, from Timothy to faithful men, who will be able to teach others also. So Paul, Timothy, faithful men Timothy teaches, and the faithful men that those men teach. And that is intended to be perpetuated. That's the idea. It's not just that four generations and then we don't we stop doing it. The idea is Paul being a faithful minister communicated the, the, the faithful message to Timothy. Timothy was to communicate it to other faithful men. Those faithful men were to communicate it to others and so on. So we have to be intentional in our communication of the gospel. Why is it important for us as parents to know the, the basic elements of the gospel to teach them to our children? To teach them to our family because we're trying to assure that generation after generation the truth is perpetuated now, you know this i don't have to tell you this at all but i just want to re-emphasize it the truth can be lost in a very short amount of time one generation in old testament had a good and godly king in israel and his son was a wicked king and it's gone i mean 40 years maybe if you want to calculate the generation by that some short amount of time and the truth is gone. The truth that we hold so dear, if not intentionally understood and communicated and perpetuated, will be lost. Now, I know not ultimately because of God's sovereign will, but I'm just saying from our point of view, we must be intentional about that communication truth. We must put things in place to see that that does not happen. We must be earnest in our endeavors to do that. So his preaching won converts. His preaching was evangelistic, communicated, reasonable, and his preaching was uh, one converts. But third, his preaching stirred up opposition. This is always going to happen. When you're faithful to the message, and relying on God's Holy Spirit, the truth works in the conscience to agitate the mind. The truth will agitate the mind in a good way. Now, they may not think it's a good way. You might not think it's a good way. Does the truth not agitate your mind? It agitates my mind. When Jay is teaching, and when Phil is teaching, when I'm reading the Word of God, and, and, you know, it, it, it is alive, and it's powerful, and it affects me. I'm like, wow, I, my life needs to match. This is important for me. This is where I need to be. This is what I need to do. It affects me in a way in, in worship. Wow, God is great. God is awesome. I mean, can you imagine engaging the Word of God by the Spirit of God and just sitting on your hands and you know, listening to the crickets chirp? The Word of God is, is intended to affect us. And our emotions are involved. We're not stones. He's taken a stony heart out of us and replaced it with a heart of flesh that can be affected and moved and changed. There's law written on And so... Therefore, we're, we're uh, being agitated in our minds with the truth in a positive way. Now, when our teaching stirs up opposition, 
we can understand it because it's agitating our minds as well. And, uh, except for the grace of God, um, you know, touching them and opening their heart to it, they will oppose it. And let's think about some of the people that opposed Paul. And this goes back a little bit before Acts chapter 17 in Athens. I just wrote down some of the things I could think of. You probably could think of many more if we were even to get outside of the book of Acts. But I put, up, I put here that he had opposition from businessmen who were profiting from evil. Remember the girl possessed by a demon? They were profiting from her divination. And when Paul cast the demon out, oh, they, lost their, they lost their business, didn't they? And so they, they opposed Paul for that reason. What about those worried about sedition against the government? It said, ah, these guys are, they're trying to come in here and they're trying to overthrow the government. They're trying to upset, upset things and we can't have that. We like our, we like our little communities where they is. Jealous Jews, that was, that's an easy one to remember. I mean, they, they probably opposed him, uh, more severely than most. What about those within the professing church? <laughs> is there opposition from the professing church if we hold faithfully to the truth? Of course. Of course there is. Uh, Bill effectively spoke last Sunday upon, uh, on that. In fact, he's done it throughout. Matthew's an excellent book that brings out the fact that there is, in, among the professing church, those who are truly of the way and those who are not. And, you know, so it's going to bring out opposition. And, you know, if you're, if you're teaching and speaking and living the truth, it's going to happen. You know, you have to understand it's going to happen. Don't be too upset by it. By the way, do we fear that the most? Do we fear opposition and persecution the most? I think, I think probably so. I think that's probably the thing that, that in our mind always catches us. It shouldn't. It should be something that we, by the grace of God, should be able to move past and understand. The Bible is, is encouraging in many places. In fact, I don't know if, if uh, anybody's still in 1 Peter, but 1 Peter 3, 14, uh, says this, um, actually verse 13, 3.13, And who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what's good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you're blessed. And do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled. Open encouraging the people of God. But, you know, I mean, God knows it's an issue with us. He knows, you know, I mean, speaking publicly is a fear of most people in general, okay? And then speaking to someone and that person rejecting you is a real emotional fear. I don't think it, it would affect me. It does affect me. You know, I'm not, I'm not saying we, we're stainless steel or we build up some sort of immunity to it. I'm just saying that we should get to the place where we understand that's going to be the nature of speaking and living the truth. There's going to be opposition. But, but it doesn't mean that it's in the story because if you have done like Paul, relied on the Word of God and the Spirit of God and, and, and implored them with earnestness and, and uh, passion in your heart as a motive, God is using that. Know and be confident God is using that somehow. And so no matter what the external response, uh, be sure that there's conscience that is being agitated <laughs> toward the Word of God. You know, you've read biographies of Christians. I won't dwell on this very long, but you've read biographies of Christians, and there is some type of mental torture nearly going on with many of them as they wrote of their experience of conversion. I mean, it, it you know, there there is wrestling 
and there is mental revolutions and upheaval going on because God is using truth, stirring the mind, agitating the soul as he brings it to himself. It happens differently for all of us, but but sometimes it's it's major revolution uh, in your thinking. And when he converts you, it, there's no doubt it's, it is. Well, any thoughts on that? I, I said a whole bunch of things there, kind of all together. I was thinking that I could replace the martyr when I came every month, and I was so challenged make yourself somewhat vulnerable. You have to rely on God and His power because you're putting yourself out there. I mean, there's a sense in which, you know, we, we, we automatically put up a defense. If I, if I came at you and it was personal, your, your defenses would rise and so would, would mine. It's just a natural response. So we have to be careful cast ourselves on the mercy and power of God as we put ourselves out there before people. And, you know, and maybe that's something that those people that have yielded their lives entirely to the service of God would know the opposition would be strong. Maybe that's something that they learned to do. And I mean, even some of the things I've read is it's not that they're not afraid, right. uh, but they accept that as part of being a witness. It can be not just in sharing the gospel, but even yeah. trying to do the right thing to us. minutes. Let's talk about some strategies, sort of strategic elements of evangelism. We, we've already opened, kind of opened that door up, but but what for, what should our purposeful, strategic outlook or endeavor be? What should our uh, strategy be? And what should we be doing or supporting those who are doing? Now, you can't do all of these things. I can't do all of these things. We're not meant to. We're, we're gifted differently by the Spirit of God. That's the beauty of the body of Christ. God puts the body together with the right elements as he sees fit. But the idea is that we should either be doing these ourselves, if that's our area of giftedness, or we should be supporting those who are. Okay, so here's some elements of uh, strategic elements. Number one has to be gospel preaching. We have to be seeking to win souls. Now, if you are, if that is what God has gifted you and given you opportunity for, that's what you should be about. 
But those who are not gifted along those particular areas of preaching and teaching should be supporting those who they know are faithful to preaching and teaching. This is one of the things that's been lost in the American church. Uh, and, and not just here, but, but I'm looking at it from, from the position of what I've seen in my life. Um, you know, upholding and throwing your support behind those that are faithful ministers of the Word of God called and equipped to preach. It's not that hard to recognize who they are if you're looking for them. And we ought to throw our support behind them. We ought to encourage them. We ought to uh, go to those churches and support their, those ministries. All right? And gospel preaching in whatever uh, form it may take. What about personal witness? Personal witness, warning, blaming, calling, as I said before. You know, there's people that are gifted with other people. Now, we're all to be a personal witness, as Joni said, with our lifestyle and the choices that we make and everything, that speaks volumes. Um, Nathan's from Missouri, right? Nathan, our guest, and we're glad to have you here today. And, um, and you know, Missouri, if I'm right, if I can remember right, is the show me state? Okay. Well, well, there's nothing wrong with people asking us to be show me Christian, you know? You know, don't, they, they've seen the hypocrites. You know, they've seen the people that go to church. Show them by your lifestyle and your personal witness that Christ has made a real difference in you. And that sometimes is not the word you say as much as the life you live. It includes the word you say, but it's not only that. So personal witness. Encourage yourself in that area. Encourage others in that area. What about engaging the community? Engaging the community. Um, you know, it was Jacob, I believe, and uh, Vince, and maybe some others here about six months ago. I kind of gathered up uh, some things and went to this community around the church and knocked on doors, told people about uh, the church, and then if they had the opportunity, shared the gospel with them. Not just the community around the church, your community, meaning your community of people. You know, I've got a community, my wife and children and my grandchildren and my in-laws and outlaws. And that's a community. My, my work is a community. So uh, engaging that community. What about evangelizing children? And I'm not talking about, you know, the smallest of small, but evangelizing it. Sunday school uh, things, curricula that Jay has mentioned recently that is solid, that is designed to uh, minister to children effectively. We have that here. So, you know, those are the type of things that, that we have to to think about to, to get solid biblical teaching to tender hearts and expect that by God's grace, that's going to bear fruit. What about holy living? You know, I mean, never underestimate uh, the power of holy living. Be ye holy, for I am holy, uh, said Christ. And, you know, again, it kind of goes back to show me. You know, you can tell me what you are, but show me what you are, and then I'll believe it. What about special places to evangelize? Again, I'm just, I'm just throwing a bunch of stuff together, some things that I read from other people, just ways that they strategize. You know, nursing homes, community groups, hospitals, what all can you think of? There's a lot of ways, especially in Oklahoma, to, to reach out and minister. Maybe it, uh, meeting a physical or an emotional need, but at the same time, you have that goal and that opportunity of meeting that spiritual need through sharing Christ with them. A lot of times the best way that you can engage someone is to meet them at their point of physical need and help with that, and then you've already created the relationship, and creating that relationship, you've shown them something right at the start. You haven't hit them with a sermon, 
shown them something that you have compassion in your heart. You care about them. Why? Why would they? Why would this person care about me? Well, they're from an affluent neighborhood over here. I mean, I'm my mom was on strung out on dope. You know, why's why is this person even coming over here? Opportunity. You meet a need. You reach out to that person. You're showing them and sharing the love of Christ. Doesn't have to be there. It can be anywhere. Clubs. Maybe you're part of social clubs and social organizations. Maybe you have an opportunity with your with your position in that club to stand before them and give an inspirational talk, which I think as a Christian certainly includes some form of your testimony of, uh, of Jesus. So, uh, Donnie and I, and I'll have to stop here, uh, Donnie and I were, uh, we had I think up to about four children. We were, I was working at the University of Oklahoma, and we were asked by the Early Childhood Development Coordinator, which I just kind of incidentally met, to come she asked me, how many children do you have? I think I'd mentioned something about children. Was it? We had five. I said I had five. Of course, that was a shocking statement to, to her at that time. If I went back now and told her we had, eventually had ten, she might have just fallen over dead. But uh, she she said, well, why, why are you having that many children? What's, what's behind it, you know? And so, of course, I mean, she, she asked all the questions. I didn't have to try. I was just like, wow, thank you, Lord. This is awesome. I mean, you know. So I got to share that it was because of, you know, our, our belief in God's sovereignty and his faithfulness and he would provide and that we love children because God loves children. And we told her about homeschooling. Of course, she's teaching early childhood development and she thought this would have been a great subject for discussion among the freshman class. And she said, would you come and bring your family to our uh, meet with our freshman class a couple of times? So about two or three hundred students. And so we come waddling in with these Children, we all sat on the platform and we're all in the fishbowl thinking, boy, this could go. How's this going to go? <laughs> For the most part, it was very cordial. Some of the students were uh, aggressive, and uh, but the, but the uh, instructor calmed that down, and uh, we just honestly answered questions. And, um, and, and it was, it was you know, one of those things where, where I think we had an opportunity given to us um, to, to share the gospel. I don't remember exactly why I told you that story, but it had, I had something in mind. Mind is a terrible thing to waste. As a commercial. I had a thought that died of loneliness. So, but anyway. <laughs> so. Sharing your faith. Sharing your faith, yeah. I think that may have been, it may have been that, uh, thinking of, of witnessing uh, through the family and the life that you live. So, uh, embarrassing for me, but take, take it for what it is. <laughs> Uh, good thing it's not the methods, is it? Because I, I mess up the methods. Looking for special places to evangelize, too. I was thinking of that, so maybe that was it. You know, just looking for those opportunities to share. Um, some people are more natural uh, engaging others in some way. If you're one of those people who's not quite as outgoing and natural, don't fret that. Don't think, well, I can't witness people. You can witness to people. You will have an impact on people as you live it, Example it as you speak it in the best way that you know how. And challenge yourself, you know, challenge yourself in some of these, uh, some of these ways. There are certainly other possibilities, ways we can accomplish uh, these goals. If we're a working church instead of a spectator church, you know, we don't want to be a church that comes in, grabs a box of popcorn, sits down in the seat, and waits for the show. We want to be a church that comes in and with all of our different giftedness, engages together collectively to see whatever way we can that the, the gospel goes out. We support 
people who are effectively doing that. Supporting them is your ministry. Encouraging them, if you can't do it yourself, is your ministry. Not only that, support and encouragement. All right, well, thanks for letting me go five minutes over.